Support for Podcast by Night is provided by Midnight Syndicate. To learn more, please visit MidnightSyndicate.com. And welcome back, everybody, to Podcast by Night. My name is John Long. I'm Jennifer Wolf. And tonight we're going to be discussing the clan that everybody loves and everybody else loves to hate. That's right, the clan of the rose. It's totally true. Everyone ha- has to hate on you because you're beautiful. That's right. And and who who is this mysterious clan we're speaking of? The Toreador. Clan oh. Toreador. Yeah, not so mysterious. They, they kind of wear everything on the sleeves, don't they? Yeah, they're kind of right there out in the open, like, I'm beautiful, and you're not, and uh, who are you again? Exactly. And, and you know what? And they're okay with that. Yeah, they're absolutely okay with that. That's right. That's right. We're going to be talking about the Toreador in our continuing our clans section of uh, Podcast by Night and exploring the world of darkness and its inhabitants. And as, we, as you may have gathered, Toreador, the clan of beauty, the clan of the rose, they really kind of take that moniker and run with it they kind of do and one of the things in the world of darkness is that well even in our actual real world beauty is kind of objective and fleeting and what you may find beautiful today may not be what is found beautiful tomorrow or in 10 years so beauty passes in a moment and it can become passe it can crumble into dust but the Toreador, being vampires, they live forever and they always want to capture that beauty and all of its perfection and keep on it forever and hold on to it. So the Toreador as a clan tend to be a beautiful, seductive clan, the type of vampires that most everyone, I mean everyone, thinks of in popular culture. They can be geniuses, they can be inventors, they're, they are always are graceful and full of charm, but just as easily, they can be cruel and callous, and they can be completely vengeful if you thwart them. So, in other words, they sound just like every vampire I've ever seen on any television show or movie ever. That's right, yeah. When you think of the the dark and broody, good-looking vampire or the the sexy seductress of the night, chances are that's going to fit within the stereotype of a Toreador. And it's, e- it's going to be easy to see when you go th- when we go through this that it's, it, 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 when we're not kidding, it, it is in their blood. They're, they are just, this is what they're about. But we're also going to try to show you that, that, you know, not all fairy tales have a happy ending. You know, that maybe beauty is only skin deep. And in the Toreador's case, that's true. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things we should note with the Toreador is that at their heart, the Toreador are all about culture. And as long as there's been civilization and there have been humans in that civilization, the Toreador have been around that, if nothing else, because they like to enmesh themselves and direct culture, art, and society. So they see themselves almost like the guides of human civilization. You know, guiding art, guiding culture, and leaving behind all these marks on humans. Um, and they see themselves as being a great clan for this. Like, look at all these great deeds and we've left and all these beautiful buildings and this artwork and this literature. They are very proud of the fact they have left that mark on civilization. Like with most things, whenever we're starting on a clan, we tend to always start at the beginning. And the Toreador as we've said, they were there at the beginning, even though their, their history is their origins are shrouded in myth and mists of time, much like all the other clans, they do like to at least acknowledge and say that, you know what, we were there at the first city. Our first embracees were mortal artists from the first city. And, and it just sort of spread from there. It's somehow, like I said, it's in their blood. It's in their, their vampiric DNA to, foster culture where they find it and if you 
have a backstory of you being from the dawn of civilization, that is going to be a point of pride that you will hold on to forever. Yeah, and their backstory, like many of the clans we've covered thus far have a backstory, you know, some mythological um, half legend, maybe partially true kind of story about where are my origins. And for the Toreador, the origin is a little bit more murky because it's not clear their first one could have been this beautiful artist who created these great works that they wanted to preserve forever and ever and ever. Or they could have been uh, just a beautiful human being that they wanted to preserve forever and ever and ever. It's not really clear. What they do know is that as long as there have been vampires and there has been civilization, the Toreador have been right in the middle of it. And they've been using their own long life and their own dark gifts to help shape and guide the civilizations that they've come into contact with. And as far as, and I didn't know this, Jen, perhaps you can elaborate, since they've been in the dawn of written history and culture and, you know, ancient civilizations, you, you have here that they could have been part of the Minoans, which is probably how they got their name. What is it, can you explain that? Yeah, so the Minoan culture is one of those ancient cultures you had to learn about in world civilization in school. And you're probably like, eh, yeah, whatever. I don't care. But the Minoans were an ancient Mediterranean civilization who we don't know much about them, but we do know that they had a big affinity for what's called bull dancing. It's not really sure what it was about or why they did it or, you know, it could be a fertility thing, could be a, look, aren't we cool and, and brave because we can jump on bulls? It's not clear. But... We do know that they practice a form of like, almost like bullfighting. It was jumping on bulls and, and there's something very beautiful about that. But even when you look at the Minoan civilization, everything we have of them is their artwork. And we have reproduced the great castle at Kenosis and all, everything has to do with bulls. And it's rumored that the Toreador were there. And that's why there was this beautiful, great civilization on this random island in the Mediterranean. And that their name Toreador, which comes from the Spanish, it's a Spanish name for bullfighters. So it, that's where the connection is. It, it, the rumor is that they've long been associated with this whole bullfighting, grace, beauty, but deadly kind of concept of art and civilization. I don't know. I personally think it's a stretch. I'm, I'm being a historian. I'm like, eh, that, that, that feels like a stretch to me. But that's that's the story. That's the story that gets, that gets claimed is that, you know, back in the day when there was when there were the Minoans, there were the Toreador and that's where they get their name. Whatever. Whatever helps you uh, sleep through the day, Toreador. Hey, well, I would definitely say that the modern Toreador could buy it you know because you know what is it it's uh it's tradition to throw roses at the matador mm-hmm. after you know so like roses bulls i mean there is some at least it's all romance non-connection non yeah exactly the romance of it uh, the connective tissue to to modern history not ancient history but you know yeah the romance the beauty the graceful the graceful kill whatever blah blah okay blah blah <laughs> As you can see, ladies and gentlemen, I may be the more romantic of the two here. I would like to point out, Toreador was one of my first clans I ever played. So and I, you did it so well. I that did. snark is legendary. It, it, it was it was true. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the Toreador, the reason the Toreador like to position themselves with these ancient Minoans is because they like to, posi to posit that they are the experts at raising up civilizations. They are giving themselves these ancient credentials to show everywhere there was a great civilization, there was a Toreador behind it. And, okay, I will say that, you know, maybe there is half a point that they have, that they are experts at raising up civilizations. I'm just going to say that they were very poor at maintaining and running those civilizations, because even the Minoans fell apart. The ancient culture of, of the island of Crete fell apart because of interclan squabbles between all the different vampires that were there. And it eventually fell. 
And this leads to the rise of other clans, the Venture in Rome, the Bruja in Carthage, and those become the new dominant powers in the Mediterranean, while the Toreador, they kind of have to scatter off for now. Their, their dominance ended with that Minoan civilization. And so then they started backing whoever was the most dominant power in, in that region at that time. But even like the Minoans, Rome's glory also began to fade, and old crumbling edifices of Ventru power began to topple, as it does, because they're Ventru. Old crumbling edifices. Old crumbling edifices. Uh, but the Toreador, they you know they keep looking for a place to set up shop. They want to be they want to be like okay, well we see the decline here. Now you know since this is our bread and butter, let's go find somewhere else. And where do they head to? They go to Constantinople. That's right. The Eastern Roman capital of Constantinople, that long storied golden age of mankind. Well, I like to think so because this is this is my jam. This is this is my historical sandbox that I play in. But um <laughs> so the venture held Rome. There's just no if, ands, or, or buts about it. But as anyone who's done their world civ knows, Rome eventually no longer the center of power and power moves to Constantinople. And the Toreador are like, oh, hey, hey, look, there's Constantine building this whole new city that's going to be the new capital and the Ventru aren't there yet. Hmm. So this very enterprising Toreador named uh, Mikhail or Bester or Michael says, uh, I'm going to set up shop there. And he takes with him a Ventru and a Shemise, who he's kind of hooked up with. And Michael has this vision of what a city, a capital city that is inhabited by both humans and vampires can look like. Where a, a city that's a center of power, both for vampires and humans, can in a weird way live in a sort of harmony, almost like the first city. And some people said Michael was a little crazy. I'm not going to deny this. The man did think he was an archangel. But he and his lovers decided they were going to create the dream. And that was going to be this beautiful city of, of Constantinople that was filled with art and, and literature and culture. And it was going to be the heart of this great society where vampires and humans all live together in this symbiotic relationship. And... It was this beautiful, beautiful dream. Again, Toreador are great at the big ideas, but the small ideas, the maintenance ideas, sometimes escape them. And unfortunately, this utopia of Michael's in Constantinople only really ever lasted a few centuries. And that was the height of Constantinople's power and supremacy. But it's it began fading away. And by the time you get to the... Um, Fourth Crusade in 1204. That's pretty much the death knell for Michael and his dream. The Frankish uh, knights from Western Europe, a lot of them were of Viking stock, all got the thumbs up from Pope Urban to say, go to Jerusalem, win it back for God, and while you're along the way, if you pick up some good loot, um, that's okay too. It's a compli- It's much more complicated. It's a much more complicated situation. But long and the short is they sacked Constantinople. And after that, Michael's dream just starts to fade away. Until uh, in 1453, the city is so weak, the vampires are so divided, uh, they that the city just falls to the Ottoman Turks. And it would become a part of the courts of the Ashira. And it would no longer be tied to Europe. And thus not tied to the Camarilla. But the Toreador dream of this beautiful utopian city of full of art and culture and architecture and great things kind of fell with Constantinople. Not to say that they didn't experiment in other parts of Europe at that time. No, while Michael was over in the East doing his thing, in the West, some other enterprising Toreadors started laying the groundwork. They took a slower approach, I guess, seeing that, hey, if we just keep these embers burning, we could probably build something out of this. And so they began working with the, the barbarous Franks and all those others in the, that the Western Empire left behind when Rome fell, started building them up. I guess, did they were they preserving the culture that was there? Were they fostering whatever the Gauls had going? I, if I were to say, I would say they're much more trying to preserve Roman culture 
and tried to pull back the, uh, the ties of civilization that were starting to fray very seriously at this time. So the Toreador were desperately just trying to hold on to what little bits they could as these new barbarian hordes kept coming in. And one of the big ways they did that was through the church. Yes. Because the church was the power that filled the vacuum that uh, was left when the Roman Empire in the West started fading away. And so there are Toreador who start working within the church itself and they begin permeating the different uh, church courts that were there. Um, They started helping to facilitate things such as the training of scribes and the hiring of artists and and the hiring of poets in order to ensure that the civilization would continue even despite these new rulers showing up and it's sort of like hey this is the culture that's here we're showing this off to you and making sure you like it because then you'll come in and maybe you'll want to be a part of this culture too that's a great point because when you look at the churches of the Middle Ages, in anything dealing with the uh, the power of the church and, and religion in the West, a lot of it is really nice art and it's architecture. Gorgeous. It's like, wow, so this must be where everybody ran to, you know, this. And so it also, in the, the minds of the civil, so the civilians, you know, the citizens, if you will, of around the church, it sort of put in their minds that they were the, the heart of all this knowledge. And that's, I think that's what the Torador were kind of going for is like, hey, let's create a hub, even though it can't, it's, you know, it'll be centralized somewhere else, but it's long reaching fingers can touch everybody. And through that, we can influence them. Exactly. And part of the reason they wanted to do it there is, well, frankly, the Dark Ages weren't exactly a time of political unitedness and sunshine in, in Europe. There was no European Union back in them days. And it was a time filled with a lot of barbarians, petty kings. Um, everybody's fighting everybody else. Everybody's looting everyone else. I had a, a professor at UCLA who, when I was doing my medieval studies course, used to like to say that these random lords would come into a village, sweep through, and rape the chickens and steal the women. It took, right. took you a moment to realize what he said. Right. But I'm like, I don't know, maybe they were raping chickens. Who knows? But there was a lot of warfare. That's the, the point of this. People were picking a lot of fights with each other over land, over territory. And it was sort of like the wild, wild west, except it was Western Europe. And because of the this these incessant wars, there were Canaanite princes who were supporting different factions over each other so you would have a prince a canine prince a vampire prince in one area who'd be supporting this warfare against this other area because he didn't like that canine prince over there so that's what you're finding these petty human kings are waging war against each other and being supported by vampiric princes and this was getting to be kind of um untenable so what the toreador decided was like okay guys 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 we can't keep supporting these kind of wars if nothing else because it's affecting our feeding grounds because every time you have a war every time prince a over here decides he doesn't like prince b's face he decides to rally all the human troops to go fight prince b well then that's less humans for us to feed off of that's not cool. So they decided, the Toreador, that it would be a great solution for this to stop all the fighting and, and to stop all the, the the raping of the chickens and the stealing of the women to have some sort of proxy wars. How can we decide how to deal with all these infighting and all this prejudice? Well, we can have a proxy war in which... No, no one gets killed. No one dies. There are no armies. It's not nearly as destructive, but it's just as ruthless. Through these pro- this concept of the proxy war, the Toreador claimed that this is where the idea of chivalry was born out of. This idea that the mortal knights, through their poetry and their abilities as troubadours, they could then spread this idea of the courtly knight who is going to be 
you know, fighting for a true and noble cause and, you know, they have their jousts and, you know, they're fighting for their lady loves and it becomes this very romanticized idea of what it means to be a warrior in this society. And the Toreador are pushing this because that way we're not actually killing each other. And this, again, uh, this is so funny. I mean, I, I think White Wolf must have done this on purpose. But it just seems like from the beginning of time to barbarism to some semblance of civility, you have the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, like all the pre-Renaissance stuff really being, much like society today, really being the groundwork for the courts of today. Because the idea of prestation and domains and like wars of words, not swords, and, and the idea of having rules. And status. And status. It's, 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 it's incredible to think that, you know, all of this is born back then, but yet it has endured because it works. It keeps keeps the uh, kind safe, you know, it keeps the the influence in its place and it keeps your resources balanced. It's and and the, you know, and then I do, I do. I think that the Toreador just in my experience had you know, I I'd believe it. If somebody, somebody walked up to me and said, "Yes, they did this." I'd believe it because I'd be like, "Yep, the Toreador are the only ones that have the wherewithal to incite the passion with the measure of control, you know, not like a bruja, to sort of push that idea well also too it's that deep and intrinsic knowledge of humans and civilization of all the clans i think they're one of the few that really get it and i mean you can see that it for example in in one of the things they developed at this time period which was the court of love and the courts of love were this um it's this very medieval concept if you've read anything about eleanor of aquitaine or any of the chivalric nonsense of like the 13th and 14th centuries, particularly in France, it the course of love were Toreador's answer to how to deal with the often conflicting interests of of Canaanite princes. So this is before the Camarilla. There's no Camarilla yet. So this is kind of how their answer was to it. So basically what the courts of love were, there were four powerful Toreadors. One was a king and three were queens. And they had a lot of influence and a lot of sway over all of the local vampire princes in the domain, but also all the humans in the domain. So the church and the lords and the counts and the knights and all of them. They had a huge amount of sway. So what would happen is say you're the vampiric prince of Paris and I'm the vampiric prince of Lyon and we decide that we don't like each other's faces for whatever reason. We would go to the court of love and say, I'm, I would say, I really don't like John because he insulted my outfit and I really want to go and get, get my revenge on him for insulting my outfit. Yeah, honestly, white after Bastille Day? I mean, really, why are you so fucking judgmental? Ugh. Say that happened, then you would go to the courts of love. And then the court of love would all sit and they would say, okay, Jennifer, you have to do various courtly or chivalric actions in order to make this case to us that we're going to side with you against John about, you know, him insulting your outfit. So then it became all these proxy competitions. I'm not actually working to physically harm you, but I may have to find an artist who does a great painting of me or someone else in my outfit. And it has to be, you know, lauded as this beautiful piece of art to show to the world that you were wrong about your opinions about my outfit. It's something like that. You know, it's it's not, we don't actually come to loggerheads about, over it, but we're basically using proxies to prove our point. And so the course of love become the means by which, you know, any particular vampire could gain power in France. And because of that, the Toreador held so much sway in France that there were only a few other clans that could rival them at that time. And that would be like the La Sombra in Spain and Italy and the Venture in Germany. They were so powerful because they could call upon all those pieces. Of It's not just 
I personally have power. It's the fact that I have so much sway on the culture of the society I live in. I can go toe-to-toe with any one of these other vampire clans. Right. That's the one thing that the idea of, you know, pushing the courts of love and pushing chivalry, it, it wasn't just, you know, it's again, like, like a chicken before the egg kind of idea. It's like, did did it happen with the kindred society first and then bleed into the mortals or did the, were the Toreador smart and they started with the mortals? It's, yeah, I don't know. It's very chicken in the egg. Yeah, because, and, and of course, like you said, it, that would give them the power base especially if all of France is already buying it, then Spain and Germany would have to go along with it because everybody's doing it. It's like the first pop culture. The Toreadors were the ones who invented pop culture. I think that's a fantastic idea. You can love them or hate them for that. I, I Depends on the day. I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> is the dress blue or is it black? Or is it white oh, or is it gold? Like, why are we having this conversation? It's the right. Toreadors' fault. <laughs> It is. Well, that's, you know, those are the Toreadors embraced in the 80s and 90s. Obviously. Obviously. So sadly, the course of love fell with the Inquisition and the burning times. But the idea of what they represent, this idea of a proxy war of influence and status, that would continue to live on in the Camarilla. So what you were saying, John, about how everything that they're kind of creating and setting up here how that we see that later on in the Camarilla, the this court of love and the proxy wars, it, there is a direct line from that to the idea of the proxy wars of the Camarilla. Yeah, that, that was just you know, I I just thought that was a good compare, you know, a, a direct line. It's kind of you, there is no chicken and egg. You get to see where it starts right here. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the Dark Ages, the the Toreador kind of were the shining light of the Dark Ages. They were the ones who were the keepers of information, the keepers of art, the keepers of culture, and they cultivated it in a way that led to, in many ways, the flowering of information that we see in the 15th and 16th century. And it's in this time, this this golden age that is the Renaissance for the Toreador, that they really start to shine. And I would say from the Renaissance to the Victorian era, the Toreador grow and prosper as a clan like probably few of the other clans ever really do. Because it's during this time that you just see this blossoming, at least in Europe, of art and culture and thought and insight. And yes, this is very Eurocentric because, you know, I hate to say it, but the Camarilla and the Toreador are Eurocentric, are a Eurocentric clan. So in their way of thinking, historically, this is the time period the Toreador just come on on their own, right? And probably the 20th and the 21st century is really, I mean, the Toreador have to be stupid giddy with themselves right now. This is like the zenith of for the Toreadors is the rise of pop culture. It's the rise of social media. There's a certain now romance around the culture of vampirism, you know, beginning with the 19th century and now full on in the 21st century. There is the Toreador have been cultivating this idea of vampires as being sexy and, you know, kind of mysterious and gothy and aren't they like so cool. But beyond the vampires, it's like everything else. Everything, everything, everything has been, has exploded. And the Toreador's sticky fingers are all over it. Well, like you said, with the the golden age that was the Renaissance, it's also um, with the advantage of, you know, printing press and movable type and the dissemination of information, be it fictional or, or nonfiction, that's also a way that they sort of plant the seeds throughout Western culture, especially. And sort of cause they're at the forefront. They control the information. They control the narrative of these stories. And like you said about the romance, um, I mean, going back, I mean, I'm sure there were were romantics well before Byron and Shelley, but they sort of, I don't know, whatever de- ideals they had, it's it's sort of like the, um, like you said before, the, the Ventru also had control. And most people, I would guess, in those terms would say Ventru or, you know, neoclassicists. They're like... I like my garden square and I like my water and round circles. They're very Roman in their outlook. Yes. And then, but the Toreador are like, no, let the garden run free and wild. I want to see vines everywhere. 
you know, and, and, and in that time period, that's kind of where all this, especially the, you know, well, Victorian came after romantic, but you know what I mean? It has long reaching consequences. Oh yeah. Like the influence is far and far afield, you know, and then, and then of course, like you said, with the vampires, you get uh, Bram Stoker and it starts there. It's just a downward spiral. Somebody pushed a ball and it just started gaining speed because ever since, you know, Byron and John Palladori up to Bram Stoker with Dracula, that idea has been darkly romantic. It's like everything's super sublime and dramatic and just, oh, isn't this wonderful? And since it's found its root, a, a toehold, not just a toehold, I mean like a death grip on culture, it's been hard for groups like the Ventru to kind of keep it down, you know, if they want to like rule something with like a corporate iron thumb, there's going to be someone over there with the uh, the organic juice bar that can oppose them. I love the idea of the Toreador running an organic juice bar because I'm like, yeah, that that would totally happen. Totally. I mean, where do you think the beatniks and the hipsters came from? You know, living in Southern California, we see many organic juice bars. So, yes. it, it, yeah. And they always offer, hey, man, you see that artwork? You can buy that. Mm-hmm. It's always some local artist. Always some. Yeah, exactly. They, get, they have poetry nights and book readings. And yes. Oh, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, the fact that we live in a culture that is so just focused on different um, ideas of art and literature and media, and um, we we're so focused on on us and putting ourselves out there on social media. I own to the fact I am a Twitter fiend. I am on Twitter way more than I ever really should be. And it's, there's something about that attention you get. Like anytime one of my favorite famous people that I follow on Twitter, like engages with me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I like noticed me. And <laughs> as a culture, we've just bought into this, this Toreador vision of the world. And we bought into it, hook, line, and sinker. Um, so in many ways, that makes the Toreador one of the most influential clans of vampires in the world culture building and keeping things alive so to speak it should come as no surprise that the toreador were at the forefront as it were to the creation of the camarilla it was something that as we as you've probably heard us talk about quite a bit um what they call the burning times it was a really flames and destruction and everything of the breakdown of kindred society it was just a bad deal and the toreador were part of the the i think what we say was the bruja the ventru they were really trying to rally everybody together for mutual protection and the Toreador's influence and contribution is second to none really because the Inquisition it was really knocking at their doors and they had to make sure that they could stay safe while the fires died down. Yeah I mean with the Camarilla probably the most famous Toreador um, especially in the forming of the Camarilla was uh, Rafael de Cortazón who was at the center of not only the formation of the sect but it's suggested that a speech that he gave, it's a very famous speech to the elders that had gathered at this meeting. It's in that speech he first suggests the idea of this quote-unquote masquerade. And that comes out of the fact that for centuries, the Toreador had been in and among mortals, you know, because it's what they do. They're influencers of mortal society. And who knew better how to navigate around humans and how to work in and out of human society without tipping your hands than the Toreador. And so they understood in an, in an intuitive way, the careful balance that it would take to survive in this new world order. And how you have to hide your true nature while at the same time, you know, you need to maintain those ties to the mortal world. So the Toreadors become huge champions of the masquerade. And they're the ones who, along with the Ventru, who had also had a long history of dealing with mortals and how to play the game of influence. So those two clans are the biggest champions of the masquerade that and it becomes the cornerstone of what would form the Camarilla and its traditions. And consequently, because of that, they are the, probably the second most influential clan in the entire sect behind the Ventru. 
as one of the so-called high clans, the Toreador are considered second only to the Ventru, because while the Ventru can boast the most princes of any clan, the Toreador are often second. And also, if they're not a prince, they are always right next to the throne in some capacity. They have, with, I guess, secondary seats of power. They're the runners-up, you know. They've got Seneschal, Keepers especially harpies because no one understands the game of status and influence like the toreador so harpy is tailor-made for these guys yeah and roles like keeper and harpy are ones the toreador covet not just because of the game of status but because the toreador understand the social games that are played in the camarilla better than most anyone as well so they understand all these rando arbitrary rules that the Camarilla has set itself up with better than just about any other clan. So they excel at these games of court intrigue and they, they're champions of the Elysia. And um, so they'll always usually want to be keeper of Elysium because Elysia often are, are safe places for art and and culture and and their neutral territory for vampires you can't pick fights there you can't bring weapons there you can't use powers there and the toreador kind of rule the roost there because they understand how to play the game there better than say a gang girl or a bruja who you know i doubt they have a real appreciation for like art I mean, seriously, they look like... Totally. That guy in the corner over there giving me the weird stink eye, he, like, smells like a dog. I know. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I don't even know why we let them in. I guess, you know, if if a fight breaks out, I'd rather have his face in front of a fist than mine. But, you know, who really, really lets them into polite society? I mean, are we that (sighs) desperate? I mean, the Sabbat didn't want them? I don't know. Have you met the Sabbat? Yeah. No, I think we're better off. (laughs) So, in that, in those regards too, um, also being second in power is also comes with influence. While the Ventru, you know, especially today, heavy corporate world, uh, the Ventru definitely hold more mortal influence in that arena. But second, also to that, is the arts and culture arena where the Toreador excel. So their their influence among the mortals of film and television, music, museums. Um, I mean, hell, a Toreador probably came up with American Idol. I'm guessing they probably did. Needless to say that in high society, yeah, it may look nice that, oh, we're at a museum opening. But guess what? You know, if you really need to, you can, a Toreador can use that museum as a front for something else that they have to do on their night-to-night business in the world of darkness. Yeah, the Toreador are going to be have their hands deep into the entertainment industry, fashion, literature, media, the arts, you name it. Um, They're going to be involved in all sorts of human distractions. So nightclubs, um, concert promotions, uh, restaurants, bars, anything bright and beautiful and shiny. They are, and they're also deep into things like, you know, not just media, but public relations, they're uh, big into sometimes they're into things like that seem a little bit more prosaic like the news because it's all about spinning um advertising uh all those pieces would be things that the toyadors are very deep into and i mean even some of the more the less savory aspects of society things like pornography uh and i say that just because we live in in Los Angeles and San Fernando Valley. Uh, but, you know, uh, things that peddle sex or sexuality or other less ex- socially acceptable uh, venues, uh, Toradors can be deep in the, uh, can be deep in the heart of those as well. It's essentially anything that they feel is culturally advantageous or pushes a particular cultural agenda. They'll usually be in the middle of it. And that makes total sense, and and it's a perfect place for them. In so much as, I mean, since you know, rumor has it that the masquerade was their idea, it it almost behooves them to honor that to sort of because so when they have all their fingers and all the human pies, like you said, even the news and marketing and spin, they they not only learn but they can also teach and have sway over ways to control the masquerade if there's like a masquerade breach they know how to cover it up oh yeah 
If you need to target an enemy and you want to do it in such a way that it doesn't look like you did it and you want to do it in such a way that stays within the bounds of the masquerade, you find a Toreador and you have them spin it for you. Maybe you want to hurt that venture over there and you know that venture's in deep in City Hall. Hey, Mr. Toreador, how much dirt do you have on the mayor? Could we maybe have start a whole campaign that's completely just trashing the mayor on news and in, in the newspapers and in public media so that he's forced to resign and thus that Ventry loses his influence in City Hall? I mean, that's the kind of power a Toreador can have if they do it right. Absolutely. Yeah. And as far as, I mean, and I would say in any given city, I would say the Nosferatu maybe are the are second to the, only the Toreador in that that kind of knowledge well i would say actually the nosferatu are first in the knowledge the toreador are first in how and how to use it oh well there you go all right just strike that reverse it toreador may not have all the dirt now a toreador would argue with me tooth and nail on that because toreador love <laughs> to gossip they love to gossip but they gotta get their gossip from somewhere and please that's what those ugly nosferatu are for because god knows why are we letting them in elysium it's only because they've got the dirt on other people Hey, you know what? And they're just happy to be there. They'll let the Toreador take the limelight. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> not a lot of love <laughs> lost between those two, two clans. No, not at all. Well, and speaking of clan, uh, the Toreadors being lovers of art and beauty, you know, you would think that they're made up of more Rembrandts and, and you know, fashion designers. But they tend to actually embrace along two different lines. This go, this is getting more into the, the internal culture part of the, the podcast. You've got those that have either been embraced because of their great skill with a particular thing, be it jewelry making, as we said, fashion design, acting, poetry, and, you know, since the beginning, artists, you know, painters, sculptors, and the other one. They call those the artistes. We're just going to throw the names out there, the artistes. And then there's the other ones that were either embraced because, wow, you're gorgeous and you need to last forever. Or, hey, you're a critic. I hate what you wrote about me. Revenge embrace. Or, hey, I've got billions and billions of dollars and I'm a philanthropist. Hey, great. Fund my art forever. And those are called typically the posers. And this is kind of how the line of the clans are broken down. Yeah, it's a very loose I would say that's a fuzzy line. If there was ever, it's very fuzzy. If there was ever a fuzzy line, that's a fuzzy line. So they right, but the Toreador, you know, they they love to put labels on things. They love to put labels on things, and then they love to argue about it. Exactly, (laughs) because (laughs) the idea of what makes an artiste and what makes a poser is very, mm, it's a very fuzzy, fuzzy line. Um, Artiste can be in reality posers and posers can possibly be artists it's really all in the eye of the beholder and so this is like the constant argument in the clan of what is and isn't an artist what is and isn't a poser who is and isn't one of those um and people get upset you know if if i am a toreador who is a painter and i feel my painting is great work of art is a great work of art but you all are like, oh my gosh, did you see what she put on that canvas? Oh my lord. You know, they may assume, assume I'm a poser. Yeah, exactly. That's the one thing that I wanted to bring up is sort of the um, the Sunset Boulevard aspect mm-hmm. of the clan. You know, you know, you're in today, you're out tomorrow, and it, and it is. It's fluid because much like the arts art scene today of any media – you you can be in and out in and out and you know it's i would say that's ultimately you know in history's storyline if you are if you can persevere then you would be the true artiste because you're the one that is in then you're out but then you find a way to innovate to get back in and then the poser is the one that just kind of sits on their hands or if you're smart you can transition from being the artiste, you know, invest wisely, get influence. And then when you become a poser, then you just kind of fund everybody else's art and you just take over, you know, as Harpy or something. Yeah. And honestly, the the division between the artiste and the poser is a t- very Toreador one. No one outside the Toreador is going to care. No, I mean, not at all. All they're going to care about is 
how much influence do you got? And can you, what have you done for me in the last five minutes? So yeah, it, it's, no one's going to care like that you can't uh, paint, but can you, um, can you maybe go smear the mayor for me? That's all anyone outside the clan is ever going to care about. The artiste and poser divide is really an internal Toreador divide. And they will argue about it till the cows come home. In terms of Toreador and status and internally, like who's respected and who's not, it has less to do with the artiste and poser. I mean, it's almost like it's really just a way of like, mean girling each other who's in and who's out and you know who's the cool kid and who's not uh but if you're a toreador who ranks up a lot of status what does it matter absolutely and it probably differs between court to court because you know you, you'd say like the court of los angeles on, on the one hand you could actually be quite cliquish and have the artists on one side and posers on the other and each one's scowling at the other but if you're somewhere, I don't know, where, like Portland, you know, if it's something a little bit more where the line's blurred. Um, one would be considered as important as the other because, hey, man, we all just get along up here. Well, that too. But, you know, I think of in terms of like a Toreador prince. If that Toreador is the world's worst artist, can't, can't carry a tune in a bucket. And, um, you know, wouldn't know fine literature if you threw it at his head, but is the prince of the domain and has all the influence and status that you can have there. Who's going to question him? Who's going to be going, oh, oh my gosh, he's such a poser. You don't want to hang with him. No, no one's going to say that because you know why? They're the prince. <laughs> right. Yeah. Everybody, everybody wants to curry his favor. Yeah. So, yeah. again, it, this is such an arbitrary argument, and the Toreador are much more invested in it than pretty much anyone else. No one else is going to care. Well, and the one thing, though, if all Toreadors share, whether you're an artiste or a poser, is their clan flaw, which is kind of what gives them their, I don't know how to put it, it, it doesn't matter, how, like you said, if this prince can't tell a great work of fiction from, you know, a dirty limerick, he can be enthralled by an, a, an impressive work of art. Oh, yes. So it doesn't matter who you are. I mean, and, and this is the one thing that, I mean, it's also actually in some games that I've played and been made fun of, is the idea that, you know, you show them the Mona Lisa and you can pretty much, they'll just stare at it till the sun comes up. It is, it's a pretty detrimental flaw, but it's also uh, lends itself to the to their the heart of the clan. I don't know anyone who used this clan flaw against any of her clan mates ever ever <laughs> what <laughs> no no well that's the other thing too about it is that it's one of those flaws that if an enemy be it you know like a social courtly enemy or a, or a actual violent you know wishes death upon you enemy uh it's very observable so it's also one of those things that as a player you need to be aware of because yes you 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 can probably try to skirt it before it happens, but brothers and sisters, let me tell you, when it does happen, you're, that's it, and you got to you got to play that out because there is no escaping it. I actually had this conversation last night uh, with a player in the game we run, who who was a torador who walked into a meeting where there is this very famous master pianist at the piano at this meeting, and only because I was. I pulled this on your character years ago. I said, "Okay, Toreador, you need to you need to give me a, a static test to see if you get in trance." And they tried to argue like, "Well, I wouldn't necessarily find that beautiful." And I'm like, mm, "No, you're you're you gotta give me a test because Toreador are going to be entranced by anything that is of great beauty." Um, that said, you know, again, I. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder or the ear of the beholder. So there is some room. I will say there's some wiggle room because um, I may not find a Picasso particularly enthralling enough to be enchanted to stare at it. Um, so, I mean, arguments can be made. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I would say as a storyteller, I would want that argument to be damn good. Otherwise... There's, re there's a reason why there are rules for it in the book. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I think where we run into, and, and this is you and I speaking as storytellers who've also been players playing Toreador, um, and speaking into this clan and their clan flaw, is I think it's very easy for a player who's like, I don't want to get like boned by my my clan flaw to um, say, oh, well, you know, I, I just, I don't want to, I don't think that's beautiful, or I'm not entranced by that, what? Um, and yeah, you're right. You have to make a darn good case because the idea of art and beauty and culture is that as a society, as a civilization, we have all agreed for one reason or the other to say that's beautiful. It's completely arbitrary. And Toreador are products of this, as much as they shape society and run society and civilization, they're also products of it. So there's just going to be certain things that you're probably going to get triggered because you're so in tune with art and beauty and culture and society that it's just you're it's almost like you're super sensitive to it you're so heightened in your awareness of it it, you can't help yourself exactly and that and that's exactly the reason why there are rules in the book that state you know if you are witness to any craft or performance of a certain level you have to test. Exactly. And that was my point with uh, the situation last night. It's like you're listening to someone who has like performance five of, uh, you know, this is a master classical pianist. I mean, this is a person who's world famous, does sold out shows all over the world. They are a, a master of their craft. You, it doesn't matter if, you don't even like the music necessarily, but it's the fact that their craft is so good and you recognize that and that's going to enthrall you. So that is the flaw of Clan Toreador. And whether you like it or not, it's sort of like, if you're going to play the clan, that's your flaw. It's sort of like being a Nosferatu. You're ugly. You're, you ain't getting around that. There is no somehow workaround, like, secretly, if you kiss me, I'm going to be a handsome prince. No. <laughs> you're ugly. You are ugly, ugly. Uh, Toreador, you're going to get entranced by art easy, and that's just the way it works. And now the other part about being a Toreador is the idea, of, you know, in clan. There's no, um, there's no hard and fast clan structure. There's no real hierarchy, but there is a concept of the guild. No, I'm, I'm not too familiar with this, Jen. So yeah. yeah. So guilds, for, for those of you who aren't like really deep into Renfair culture, which I think is the, the only other analogy I come up with off the top of my head. Maybe if you're into gaming and you play some, you know, some of these like very uh, fantasy you know, like RPGs online or something, they, they have guilds. But a guild is really more or less an eternal it's an internal coterie within clan Toreador and it's a group of Toreador who all agree that they're going to form around um a particular art or craft or artistic expression so oh so you mean it's like guild like actual guild. like an actual guild like a medieval guild so oh wow okay. yeah so it's like you know, think of I, the model I kind of came up with in my head was, um, you know, in Oxford, they're very fond of uh, like these dinner clubs where people would all just get together and, and, and they're there for a specific purpose. Uh, Tolkien and C.S. Lewis's like literary club at, at Oxford is a perfect example of this. It was a bunch of Oxford dons who all were big into writing and they all really liked writing about like, you know, fantasy topics. And they'd all get together and they would discuss and they would hammer out ideas and they would compare notes and, and then they would produce things like, you know, Tolkien came up with, you know, the it was there that Tolkien really hammered home like some of the things that would become Lord of the Rings. And C.S. Lewis came up with the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, ideas that they had already had beforehand, they were able to go to this group and say, hey, let's brainstorm and like workshop these. That's what a guild is. And guilds can be about anything. It could be about, um, you know, uh, punk rock music. <laughs> you can have a guild that is that is focused on that and their pro the promotion of punk rock or um 
a guild that is all about the preservation of museums or what have you. It's just whatever you as this particular group agree on, this is what your passion is going to be. I guess I did know a little bit more than I thought. Yeah. The idea, yeah, the idea, it makes total sense. It makes total sense, especially when you brought up the, like, the Ren Faire example, mm -hmm. because that's, like, modern, modern people, I don't want to say pretending, but they are forming these groups based around, because I've been, you know, you and I have been to Ren Faire. Oh, yeah. You have jugglers and comedians and actual smiths. So it makes total sense that they would create guilds based around those crafts. So why not a clan of artists? Yeah, it makes total sense. And these guilds, it's not just for the perfection of one's own art. It is also to promote that art into the community. It is to create standards around that art. Um, it is to... Uh, you know, be the champions for that art and using your influence to help champion it. Um, usually a guild is led by an elder or at least the eldest vampire of the particular group. And it can be made up of a, a mixture of artistes and posers because you kind of need both of them to make anyone work because it's not just all about being artistic. It's also about the dirty, dirty business of doing it too. So it's you usually have a healthy mix of the both. And they seem to be arranged however the guild chooses. So there isn't a rhyme or a reason outside of what they desire to do. So it, it's 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 much more like the internal Toreador creative workshops. Would you say that as far as like the one that speaks for the clan um, it would be a, their representative within the inner council? Uh, would I say that that's a guild? I mean, I... no, no, not guild. Like the the head of the clan. Like you said, the guilds aren't necessarily the, you know leading the clan. Oh yeah. But as far as internal clan structure goes, is there is there like a head? Is there a shot caller? Uh, not, <laughs> not really. Um, oh, okay. it's the Toreador are so decentralized. It's it's usually respect is given to who whoever takes it whether they're the eldest and most powerful toreador in the city or whether they are the, simply the toreador who's the most cunning and got all the the status and prestige in a global level i i would say probably the most recognized toreador and the ones given the most respect by the clan and outside of the clan would be rafael de corazon who is their um inner circle member and one of the founders of the Camarilla. Um, also, Prince Francois Villon, who is the Prince of Paris. But when I say Prince of Paris, he's really much more the Prince of France. I mean, there's other princes in France, but you know, he's pretty much the high muckety-muck. You know, you don't cross Villon. Um, so, uh, yeah, those are some of the... And these are Toreadors who are so revered and so respected because of the influence they hold and the art that they've promoted. And I don't think either one of these really is an artiste. I mean, they would probably argue the point, but I mean, Villon was once, he was a poet, but you know, when was the last time he created anything? Um, I don't think either one of them is an artiste anymore. I think both, I, I think, I don't know if Raphael de Corazon ever really was. I think he was just pretty um, and gave good speeches. But um, but they are powerful. And because they're powerful, they are given respect. Now comes my, again, one of my favorite segments. Jen, if you please. I am such a Toreador. I like art and stuff. And so, like, uh, how do I play one? Oh my god, like you're so much an artist. You should be can you do comic books? I love manga. <laughs> Don't knock it. There is probably a Toreador who is a complete manga artist. You know there is. Are you kidding? I I bet I bet it was a Toreador that invented Rule 37. <laughs> you know, if it's out there, there's something for it. Yeah. Well I guarantee it. I will say this about the Toreador. The Toreador, like the Bruja, they're fairly easy clan for the new player. And I will uh, fully admit. Toreador was my first clan. It was the first clan I ever played. It's the first clan for, for many people I know. Uh, because it is so easy for them for you to get into it. Um, it 
because you because of what the Toreador represent, you're usually going to either be pretty or you can make pretty things. So there's a lot of wiggle room in those parameters for you to create a character or to you to, for you to play a character. And it's a, a very forgiving clan because there isn't that deep structure and hierarchy um, because, you know, there isn't. And, and, and so for a new player, that means there's not a lot of, you know, people like hanging over you going, no, no, shame, shame, you did bad. So it's a great clan for anyone who's just starting out playing Vampire the Masquerade and you're just getting your feet wet and you don't know what's going on. Play a Toreador. I mean, like the Bruja, it's, they, yes, on the surface, they may seem one dimensional. I, I assure you they're not. But it's also because of that aspect, it just makes them very easy for the new person to kind of slip in there. And, and it's a great place to start to learn how this all works. Absolutely. Oh, and a, as a quick retraction, editorial retraction, it is rule 34. Rule 34, not 37. Oh, shame. Shame. Yep, shame. I, I just had to say that just in case we got some angry letters. <laughs> um, so, yeah, if you want to go the artiste route... There's a ton of different pathways for you. Um, I mean, as, if you can think of anything that... If you would like to reach us after our normal podcast hours, we can be reached on Facebook at Podcast by Night, on Twitter at By Night Podcast, or at our email at podcastbynight at gmail.com. <laughs>